Our God and Father, thank you for your word. It is exalted. It is precious. Thank you for the believers here who have sacrificed their time and their strength in order to hear from the word of God, to be shaped by it, all for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose victorious for us, who bought our soul with his own blood. Thank you for him. And we ask that this evening there would be great clarity from your word, great conviction brought, great formation had because of the nature of the truth and its content. May it truly have an impact on us. And may we carry forward these realities with us every time we open our Bibles, every time we think about scripture. May these moments compel us in how we handle the word of God and how we respond to it. Lord, we ask these things not for our own benefit merely, but so that you would be honored and that the masterpiece that is your word would be exalted. May you be glorified now. We depend on you and the spirit and we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. More than ever, more than ever in our time, We live in a situation where any kind of notion of truth, absolute truth and absolute certainty has completely eroded from our society's consciousness. The line between what is truth and error, what is real and fake has been completely erased and we can no longer distinguish between the two. In fact, for many people in this world, there really isn't that much of a difference between truth and error. And for everybody, the distinction between these things has been quite blurred. But it always wasn't that way. It used to be there was a time when what was real was real and what was fake was fake. And it was clearly distinct and identifiable. In fact, back in the good old days, the only thing people really worried about relative to fake things were the fake things you bought overseas on missions trips to give to people as gifts back home. That was the only fake thing that there was. Fake jewelry, fake toys, fake watches, fake accessories, fake purses, imitation stuff. And even then, everyone knew that fake things were fake. They turned your arm green. They, they did things like didn't work or you, there's a reason why you never paid market value for them because you knew that the percentage of discount there was, was the percentage of reliability that those things had. And so, yes, there's a reason why you can buy a Rolex for 4% of the price because it only works 4% of the time. And so you buy one and you know, this is only going to last for four minutes. You understand that. You know that going in. There was a time back in the good old days that what was fake was fake. We knew it was fake and we understood what fake meant. You buy a fake Rolex, you never use it to tell time ever. You knew that and you knew that it fit in that category and had those limitations and was that and it was completely different than what was real and what was substantive. But nowadays... All of those distinctions and that sharpness of reality is gone. We don't just have fake products, imitation brands, 
We have fake news, fake medicine. We have fake science and fake history. We have fake authors. We have fake media. We even have fake emails. Those are things like spam and phishing. We have deep fakes and atrocity of atrocities. You even have fake Amazon reviews. You have fake everything. And because everything now can be faked and everything is fake, it's very hard to tell between what is truth and what is a lie. And people keep trying to do that and they get in this cycle of verification to try to prove what is real and what is not. And then they get exhausted by that. And in the end, they just conclude, oh, it really doesn't matter. What is fake is fake. What is real is real. But there's precious little difference between the two. And that is our society's attitude. It really doesn't matter if you lie or tell the truth. It's basically in their minds the same thing, the same thing. That's why media, that's why politics operates the way it does, because the line between truth and error has effectively been erased. And that mentality, that attitude, that disposition about truth and lie and the absoluteness of truth has seeped into the church. It's become our attitude and particularly our attitude to scripture. And yes, people will say all the time, we're not relativistic. We believe in absolutes. We believe in absolute truth. And they'll just keep saying that over and over and over and over again. And it almost feels like Princess Bride where you want to say to people, you keep saying you believe in absolute truth, but I don't think you know what that means because actions speak louder than words. People will say things like this. Well, of course I believe in absolute truth. Of course I believe. If the Bible says it, it's absolutely true. But I think my experience has something to say too. I think my experience has something to add on to this. I believe that my insights and the categories and the definitions that I've observed and derived and come up with and were taught should be put alongside of the Bible. Well, if you believe that something should be put alongside of the Bible, is it really absolutely authoritative? Or is there something else that also competes and vies for the title? We also say something like this. Well, of course, I believe in absolute truth. And you can hear this in churches across America and really the world, but you have to interpret it. And who knows what it means? And so now you have to verify if your interpretation is a real or right interpretation and you're caught in this verification cycle and you can never reach the truth. Is that then absolute truth? if you can't actually understand it? And then on top of that, people will say, well, of course, the Bible is absolute truth. But if it talks about certain subjects like creation or sexuality or or the roles of men and women in the church, well, the Bible's just not geared to actually speak to our society today about those issues. Well, if the Bible can't speak to certain issues, is it really absolute truth? That's the question. And so we keep saying, yes, of course, the Bible's absolutely truth. Of course, it is absolutely authoritative. But we've killed that with a death of a thousand qualifications. We've killed it with the death by death of a thousand verifications. And the church has been ready to accept this because we have already been primed by society that that's okay. That's okay. One of the clearest, though, illustrations of the problem is that when fads and when trends come in the church, whatever they may be, and people come up with the conclusion, they say, what you need to do, 
What you need to do in this situation is preach the word. That's what you need to do. You need to explain the scriptures. You need to hold fast to the word of God. And people ask, well, well, what else do you need to do? Is it, What else do you want to add on to that answer? Do you want like a second answer? Sure, sure, we can give a second answer. Preach it more. Hold it harder. Hold it faster. Cling to it more intensely. That's all you have to do. People get upset. People get mad. And people start calling others names. They say, you're ignorant. You don't understand. You are shallow. You're unsophisticated. You're not very intellectual. And they start to say, well, don't you get it? You can't just do that. You're not going to be able to address these issues. That's not sufficient. It won't work. It's not enough. You need something or you need to have something more. That's always the comeback. And at that moment, it should be very clear. If you need something more than the Bible, then that means there is something outside of the Bible that verifies it that the Bible now has to depend on for its authority and for its veracity and for its truthfulness. And if there is something outside of the Bible that the Bible has to depend on, then the Bible is not first, it is second. That's what we actually believe. We have ceased from being sola scriptura to scriptura is second. That is what our churches actually believe. And this isn't just, this isn't just out there. It can be in our very own heart. It really can. Because the moment that we read scripture and it convicts us and we say, well, I'm just not really sure if that's really what I think it says it says. And we get into inter- interpretation or, or we say, well, my experience and the way I feel and the way I sense and the way I reason through it, well, I don't think that really has a place. All of those things are us just negotiating with the scripture and negotiating away the scripture. But if you negotiate away the scripture or negotiate with the scripture, it's no longer absolute. The very definition of absolute means this. It is the definition and that's it. There is no negotiation. There is no qualification. There is no exception clause. There is no excuse. It declares, and that's it. There's nothing else. But we've lost that. Our churches have lost that. And even in our own heart, especially in light of societal convention and pressure, we've lost that. So what do we do? So what do we do? We need to retrain our heart. We need to re-entrench our convictions. We need to have it in our minds that every time we open the word of God, that we have a certain disposition, a certain propensity, a certain perspective on this book and the content that it declares. And every time we hear a sermon and every time we hear a message declaring the truth that our hearts and our minds are wired a certain way and it isn't the way of death by a thousand verifications. It is the way that we cling to this book and we surrender to this book and we say, no, this book defines everything that I am, not the other way around. We need to reclaim that. And you say, how do I do that? What what passage 
impresses that upon me. It is the passage in front of us this evening, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. To be sure, to be sure, this is textbook definition of inspiration. But there is a reason that Peter is talking about inspiration the way he does. It is because he wants to make sure you understand this is the most sure word. And there is nothing like it. And therefore, it has the final say. And it has the only say. That is his purpose. And so this is designed to instill in us a conviction about the nature of the word of God, which bolsters everything that the word of God stands for and everything that it articulates. And that must be our attitude. That's what we're going to be covering this evening. The most sure word. So we surrender and cling to that word. Well, before getting into 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, some context is necessary, and it's necessary really for two reasons. One, most fundamentally, so that we rightly understand the exact nuance, the exact purpose of these verses. But additional to that, second, there are just so many important lessons to learn about the scriptures and our response to them and the Bible's heart for scripture and the biblical writer's attitudes towards scripture that it is worthy to go through this and really begins with historical background, the historical background of 2 Peter. And this historical background of 2 Peter, in some sense, is simple. These are Peter's last words. You say, how do you know that? Well, because he says in 2 Peter 1.13 that he's about to die. How does he know that? Because he's about to leave this bodily tent, verse 14, just as the, our Lord Jesus Christ has made it known to me. He's going to die. He's going to die. And here is something fascinating to think about. Out of all the things that you could talk about if you knew you were going to die, out of all the important subjects, out of all the pressing matters, out of all the things that would have strategic impact, out of all the things you would want someone to hear, what does Peter talk about? The word of God. Chapter one, the verses that we're in, the word of God. Chapter two, he talks about the word of God in light of how the false teachers are going against it. Chapter three, he talks about the word of God, warning about those who twist and pervert the word of God unto their own destruction. Every chapter, you don't have a lot of chapters to work with, Peter. You got three, it's like a postcard. What are you gonna put on there? The word of God. What mattered most to a dying man was his Bible. What mattered most to a dying man was his Bible. And he's not the only one. Think about Paul when he was writing the epistle of 2 Timothy. What what was the epistle of 2 Timothy for Paul? His dying letter. How do we know that? Because in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I'm about to reach my heavenly reward. What is that another way of saying? I'm gonna die. And every chapter in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, hold fast to sound words. 2 Timothy 2, rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathe. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. And you know what Paul says at the end of 2 Timothy 4? He says, bring me my jacket. Why? Because it's cold. That's why. And you know what he parallels with that? Bring me my Bible. Bring me the manuscripts. 
I would contend that the reason he puts those in parallel is what he's saying is, I need the Bible more than I need my clothing. I need my Bible more than I need my food. Because what's going to get me home, Timothy, what's going to help me and comfort me in the time when my life is on the line is the book that I've been talking to you about for four chapters straight. It is the word of God. And I'm not just going to tell you, I'm not just going to say to you, Timothy, how important this is. I'm going to show you, bring me my Bible. That's what I need right now. I need it more than what I need. I need more than the necessities of life. I need my Bible. Give me my Bible. Have you noticed that when biblical writers are about to die, what they always talk about is their Bible. And that's important. That's not by accident. That's not just coincidence. Well, look at that. Both guys like their Bibles. That's really neat. It's because they realize what's most important. Listen to the words of dying men. This is what they cared about. This is what they knew strategically you needed. This is what they knew you needed to protect. This is what they knew you needed to be ingrained in. This is what they knew the struggle would be. This is what they knew your foundation would have to be. It all goes back to the scripture. They knew that. And so as they were dying in their moment of greatest clarity, what they do is they tell the ones that will pass on their legacy to those who after them continuously and perpetually, you must know you must love, you must understand your Bible. Never forget the words of dying men. This is what they cared about. And this is what you need to care about. It's that important that people as they're dying, this is what they're telling you about because it's the most important thing. You need to have convictions about scripture. And this isn't just by virtue of historical background, this logic about the importance of scripture for Peter. This is ingrained in the very way that he writes scripture. He writes his final letter. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse says, Simon Peter, slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith like ours, That's what he talks about, a faith that is unified with ours, of the same kind of faith. And with that language that we have received the same faith, Peter is reminding, you are in the truth. You have it right, as do the rest of those in God's church truly. But that also implies there are others that do not. There are others outside of you. And he is at that moment targeting the false teachers, the false preachers, and he's reminding his people, there are those who are not of the same faith. There are those who stand against the true faith. And everything in Peter's letter then is a passionate plea to know the true word of God in contradistinction to the false teachers who are opposing it. Everything in Second Peter in this way is polemical. It's an argument targeting 
the false teachers and the false preachers who bring in false doctrine. And you might wonder, what then is this defense? What is then Peter's argument to these people to guard themselves against false teaching, to guard themselves in the truth against the false teachers? What is so essential, what is so critical in the tool belt of usages to fortify oneself against these individuals? And here's the interesting answer. Peter's answer is this, sanctification, sanctification. You wanna know the greatest fortress to being resilient against false teachers, to not be swayed by false doctrine, it's to be sanctified. That's Peter's point. That's Peter's answer. And there's a reason for this. Because according to Peter, when you are sanctified, like it says in 2 Peter 1 verse 8, then you will be confident in your salvation. You will have assurance in such a way you know will be provided for you as you go before the Lord God in your life. And so if you are confident in your salvation, then the false teachers never have an opportunity to sway you out of that because you are always assured. So you cannot be undone from that. Likewise, in verse nine, it talks about those who are intentionally blind. When you are sanctified, there is a deliberate contrast between you and those who are not true in the faith. And so you can detect them. And on top of that, if you are sanctified, notice even in verse three of chapter one, it talks about how we have and we should know the knowledge of the one who called us and how we should add on to our virtue knowledge. There is this emphasis of knowing God and knowing God implied through the scriptures. When you are sanctified, you are consumed by God's word. And if you are consumed by God's word, then the false teachers can never trick you because you can always discern through everything. And so sanctification produces people who can discern, people who can won't be deceived because they can see the contrast between what is true and what is false and people who will never be dissuaded or distracted because they're confident in their sanctification, in their salvation. You want to know how to defend against false teachers? You want to know how to remain strong when false teachers arise and not to be deceived? Simple, be sanctified. Be sanctified. And here's something to contemplate. The very fact that the American church and really the global church has so many false teachers with so many false teaching and they have so many fads and trends is not just because we have social media and that spreads false doctrine like wildfire. It only spreads if there are people to receive it and they can only receive it and would receive it only if they're not sanctified. What you have in the church now more than ever is a crisis of sanctification. That's what you have. You may have moralism. You may have behavioralism. You may have therapy, but you don't have sanctification in the church. You don't have people pursuing Christ. You have people pursuing behavior. You don't have people pursuing holiness. You have people pursuing morality. You have you don't have people pursuing worship and Christ-likeness. You just have people wanting to get out of problems. Beware of false sanctification. 
beware. The only way you're going to be truly resilient against false teaching is, according to Peter, being sanctified. And if we're not, as it is in the church at large, it's indicative that we have a massive sanctification problem. Well, Peter, having expressed all this, expresses his desire to really impute and really deliberate and really press and express with deep intensity these matters more and more, especially as he's about to die. And that is because the scripture is so sure. Since everything is pointing to the scripture and about defending the scripture, since the scripture is sure this is a noble cause. And of course he wants to talk about it. And because the scripture is foundational for all these things, it makes those things certain. And therefore he wants to talk about all the more as well. It is all hinged upon scripture. And that is why he is introducing verses 19 through 21. This is is the linchpin of everything. And on top of that, furthermore, because Peter is about to, in 2 Peter chapter 2, refute the false teachers, he lays the groundwork to do so in these verses, verses 19 through 21. Yes, they are the textbook definition of inspiration. That goes without saying. But in context, they are meant to show you the security, the surety of sanctification, as well as the foundation for how you refute and discern through false teachers. That's what's going on in context. And that's an important reason because everything you read in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21 is polemical. It is an argument against false teachers. It is meant to refute them and debunk them and challenge them and oppose them and contradict them. And at the same time, there needs to be a very important observation made here. You see, sometimes in the world, people discussing bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, they'll say something like this. They'll say, well, I would believe in inspiration and I would believe in inerrancy and I would believe in the infallibility of scripture and I would believe in the authority of scripture, but, well, people just use that as a weapon against whatever I want to believe. And because they don't let me believe what I want to believe by using these doctrines, I don't like it. And they say things like this, they've weaponized bibliology. They've weaponized it against me. And that's not good. So I'm not going to believe these things. And they make it sound like people are villains for doing this. Think about the context of 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. The reason Peter is talking about the Bible, the reason Peter is talking about inspiration, the reason that he's giving you the textbook definition of all of these things is to refute the false teachers. The the definition comes weaponized. That's part of its point. To be clear, do we need to? Must we be gracious and loving in the tone and everything of our speech as we go through these things? Absolutely. Absolutely. We speak the truth in love. We know that. But that doesn't change the nature of the truth. That doesn't change the nature of having the highest bibliology, a bibliology that the Bible demands. And that is what we must have. And that is what we must have. And it all goes back to the reality that inspiration showcases that the Bible is more sure. It is more sure. 
And Peter gives us three ways that the Bible is more sure. It's more sure than our experience. It's more sure than our explanations. It's more sure than everything. We see this respectively in each of the verses of verse 19 through 21 of 2 Peter 1. And so with that, let's walk through the text together to see and be shaped by and to surrender to these truths about scripture. Scripture, first of all, is more sure than your experience. Scripture is more sure than your experience. Look at verse 19. And we have as more sure. And we have as more sure. Sometimes there's some debate here concerning the translation, but really the idea truly is that it is that the Bible is more sure than what is talked about in context. If it was trying to say that the Bible became more sure or something like that, as some translations have, we would expect a verb to be used, but it's not, it's an adjective. And moreover, just like people learn in seminary and in English and all these things about predication and adjectives, we say the boy is good. The boy is nice. The man is evil, et cetera, et cetera. And that all indicates that this is not about the Bible becoming more sure, but what it is. It is more sure. But here's the question of verse 19. What is it more sure then in context? And in context, it's more sure than Peter's experience, specifically his experience of the transfiguration. And examine this experience with me, starting, say, from verse 17 or so. Notice he talks about being an eyewitness at the end of verse 16 into verse 17. And in verse 17, he's not just an eyewitness. He's seen things. His senses are engaged. And on top of that, he's not just that he's seen things with his senses. He's even heard things with his senses because he has heard the voice and he knows word by word what God has declared about his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And on top of all of that, this is an immersive experience because Peter remembers this moment, even though perhaps it was around 30 years earlier, but yet he remembers it like it was just yesterday. And so this is an experience that Peter has been completely immersed in, every sense engaged in. It is imprinted on his memory. He knows, he knows without a shadow of a doubt that this is absolutely true. He's an eyewitness. He can give testimony to this. He's sure that he understands this. And what does he say, though, about Scripture? Even though I know this is true, even though I am absolutely sure with my entire being that this is true, what does he say about the Scripture? We have the Scripture as more sure. The Bible is more sure than what you know you know. Think about experiences in your life. Think about moments in your life. You just know with your whole being, every fiber of your existence, that that is true, that this exactly happened this way. Understand that and understand this. The scripture is more sure than that. The scripture has more certainty and more definition, and it is more authoritative and more definitive than that. That is the level of surety of the scripture. It is more sure than our experience. That's the level of validity of scripture. And that really matters because people are often tempted to elevate 
experience above the Bible. We often hear people say, well, yeah, but if the Bible just knew the categories that I know nowadays, if the Bible knew the definitions I knew nowadays, the Bible had the science and the technology and everything that I have nowadays, then the Bible would have to adjust itself and and kind of make different qualifications. No, no, no. Peter does not say that your experience enhances the Bible or it makes a good illustration of the Bible, or it helps to improve on the Bible. What does he say? The Bible is more sure than what you know, you know. The Bible is of a different caliber than your experience. The Bible is of a different certainty, a categorical certainty that goes far beyond anything you know, even if every sense, even if every part of your being, even if everything in your memory is absolutely certain, the Bible's more certain than that. The Bible's certain, more certain than that. That's the level of certainty it has. You cannot add on anything to the scripture because it is more sure. And the obviousness of this and the clarity of this is seen in how the scripture is described. Notice he says, and we have as more sure the prophetic word. Why does Peter describe God's word as prophetic? Well, for one, it's prophetic because it deals with the Old Testament, with the prophets. That's true. It's also prophetic because it is dealing in this passage with the prophets who prophesied under inspiration. And so it links with inspiration. That's true. But there's a more fundamental reason why Peter calls the prophetic word, the prophetic word. And that is because the prophetic word has prophecy. And what is the nature of prophecy? You predict something and it happens. You decree something and it takes place. You foreshadow something and that's the way it is. In fact, even in context, notice the phrase in verse 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why did God say that? Why did God say that in the transfiguration? Because there are prophecies in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 40 through 48 where God declares, this is what I'm going to say about my son. And therefore, when he talks about his son, that's what he's going to say. Why? Because he prophesied it. He prophesied it. The word of God prophesies and it happens. The word of God decrees and so it is. The word of God is the cause of experience. So if you think that, oh, I've got experience and that proves the Bible. Oh, I've got experience and it makes the Bible more certain or I've got experience and that can enhance the Bible. You've got it totally backwards because the only reason you have experience and the only reason experience exists and the only reason history, which is the surroundings of experience exists is because the Bible said it so and made it so. Experience is not the cause and the scripture is the result. The scripture is the cause and your experience is the result. And because the scripture is the source and the cause, that makes it on a whole different level of certainty because now it actually is the determiner, the definer, the decreer of your experience. That's the nature of the scripture. That's why Peter here says the prophetic word. Of course, it's more sure. It's what made your experience. 
So how could you ever think that you who experiences things and you experience part of things could actually know more than actually what made your experience happen the way it does and inherently defined it? You can't. The scripture, because it's prophetic, it is more sure inherently of your experience. And we don't just need to understand that. We need to live it. Notice what the text says which you do well to pay attention to. The word pay attention is something where you have high concentration, high focus on something to the point where it controls and consumes you. Interestingly enough, inversely, it's even used in a book like 1 Timothy chapter three to talk about people who get drunk because when you pay attention to alcohol, you are so fixated on it and you are so focused on it and it so controls and consumes you. That's why you become a drunkard. In an inverse way here, what are we to be with the word of God? You focus on it. You concentrate on it until it absolutely consumes and controls you. And at that moment, what Peter demonstrates is the logical consequence of this. Of course, the scripture is more sure than your experience. That's why you depend on it. It makes your experience. And the intensity of this is in the next phrase, as a light or a lamp shining in the dark place. If you're in a dark place, which is not just dark, but dangerous, which is kind of the entailment of the term dark, you're not going to just try to wing it. You're not going to just try to say, well, I feel like I could take a step this way. That's how you die. If you want to live, this is how you survive, walking along a dangerous path. You look at the light of your flashlight or the lamp or whatever it may be, and you make sure that the next step you take won't be your last because of how the light illuminates that. That's how you treat God's word. You don't know better. You don't know better. You don't just want to go by your gut instinct. That's how you die. Instead, if you're so focused on the word of God to make sure that every step you take will be the way that you survive this life, that's how much you need to depend on the word of God because it is so sure. Your experience doesn't outweigh the Bible. The only way you survive your experience is with the Bible. That's how it works. And there's something obvious within this that needs to be pointed out. Sometimes our problem is that we just think we're just so smart. That's our problem. We create all kinds of technology. We think we're so illuminated. We got AI, we got Siri, and we can ask Siri anything. And we think we're so brilliant because we can do that. Siri, how do I get to in and out? Siri, order me Wendy's. Siri, how am I saved? Siri will give you an answer to that question. I checked. Granted, the answer will send you to hell, but at least, at least Siri can give you an answer and we just feel like we're so intelligent. And the more intelligent we feel, it has an anesthetizing effect of how much you actually need the Bible. That's our problem. We think we're so smart. Remember what Peter says. The word of God is the lamp. You are in the dark. We're not enlightened. We're not illuminated. We're not bright. We're clueless. We're groping in the dark. We have no idea where we're going to go. And we're probably going to make the wrong decision and die. That's the truth about us. 
And what's the Bible? It's the light. It's what actually can save. It's what actually illumines. That's what it is. If we understand who we really are and have humility in it, then it becomes obvious. How dare anyone think that their experience could ever be better than the word of God? We're clueless. Would you ever accept the advice of someone who told you, I don't know, but this is what I think. A doctor comes to you and says, do you know what my problem is? Absolutely not. But here is what I think anyways. Well, then I'm going to get a real opinion. That's what you would say. So how dare we think? Yeah, of course, our experience is equal to the Bible. We know we don't know. That's what we should know, that we don't know. And so in light of all of this, we must cling to the word of God and the word of God is faithful and its sufficiency and its certainty is seen in this, that it can get you all the way to the end. Notice the end of verse 19. It says this, that you cling, that you pay attention like a lamp in shining in the dark place to the word of God until the day dawns. This day and the word dawning in the text refers to the end times. It refers to the day of Yahweh that is spoken of both the New Testament and Old Testament. And in Old Testament, like passages in Zechariah, where over and over it says, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. And you have amazing things happening where Israel is delivered and enemies are crushed and the world is renewed and every promise is fulfilled. It's amazing things. And here is what God says. You know how powerful and sufficient this book is? It'll get you home. It'll get you to the end. It'll get you to the point where everything is made right and every prophetic word in this word is fulfilled. It'll get you there. Nothing else will. This is what will get you there. You cling to this book, it'll get you home. That's how sufficient it is. And it's not just sufficient for everything outside of you. It's sufficient for everything inside of you. Notice the next phrase, and the and the star and the light will rise in your heart. The idea of a star, the light, this is Christ. This is a title for Christ that you find in the Old Testament. And the idea that it rises is found in the book of Malachi, prophesying about Christ's return and his glory in the end times. And all of that is true. And all of that is involved. But notice the last phrase, where is he rising specifically in this text? Not just outside of us, but in your heart. Here's what Peter tells his readers. The word of God won't just get you home where everything around you is made right. The word of God will get you home when everything in you is made right too. The word of God will solve your problems outside of you. The word of God will solve your problems inside of you. If it solves everything outside of you and everything inside of you, it solves everything. It'll get you home. It'll get you home. You don't need anything else. Let me put it simply this way. People think that their experience defines the Bible. That's ridiculous. The Bible defines not only your experience, the Bible defines and determines your destiny in every single way. And so we cling to this word. In a time when our society is so confused and we keep just focusing on ourselves as if we're the establisher and enforcers of everything legitimate in our lives, the Bible reminds us, this is what's more sure than everything. This is what's more sure than your experience. You cling to this book and it'll get you home. It'll get you home. Never, ever forget that.
Never exalt your experience otherwise. That's just asking for death. And so Peter says, the word of God is more sure than your experience, but he doesn't just say it's more sure than your experience. He says, it's also more sure than our explanations, more sure than our explanations. And we see that in verse 20, the very next verse. With the phrase, know this, that is actually modifying the reality of clinging to and paying attention to God's word. It's all about how we handle then God's word, the reasoning behind that. And that matters because in verse 20, there is a question, is this verse talking about the origin of scripture or is it talking about the handling of scripture? Which one is it, origin or handling? Well, if you go word by word here about how no prophecy comes from man's own interpretation, every single word will tell you this is about origin. This is about the composition of scripture. This is about how it was written down, its source. For one, the very phrase, no prophecy, reminds us of the exhaustive scope of what we're talking about, the scripture's origin. We're talking about it comprehensively. We're talking about every prophecy, so every single detail of it, all that has been written down, every single aspect of it, that is exhaustively the nature that is being discussed. And what is being discussed relative to its origin in such exhaustive terms is that it did not come from, it did not come from, when we talk about coming from something, well, that's source. And it also is source because it didn't come from one zone. And that phrase one zone is used throughout literature outside of the Bible to refer to man's own authorship, man's own origination, man's own composition, man's own imagination. And when you talk about authorship, well, that's about source. So that's source and origin as well. And even the word interpretation, no scripture came by one's own own interpretation. That word actually deals with origination as well. In Genesis chapter 40, the Greek translation, or shall I say a Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this word interpretation that's found in this text to denote that what Joseph gave to other people was both the revelation of God and the interpretation God wanted that revelation to have. In other words, he did not interject his own opinion, his own understanding, his own ideas, his own fallibility into that revelation. Rather, it was purely God's all the way through in what was said and how it was communicated. And so what we're looking at here in verse 20 is that this is talking about origination and origination in a very particular way. Namely, when the Bible was written, Man did not interject or inject or incorporate anything of his own opinion, his own fallibility, his own interpretation, his own ambiguity, his own unclarity, so that things just got distorted when the Bible was written. Rather, this is purely from God, 100% the word of God, nothing but the word of God. That's what's being talked about here. And you say, well, that's great. So what? Why does that matter in context? And why is this even being emphasized? Why does Peter even use this word interpretation? And the principle is simple. The principle is simple in context. How the Bible was written is how it must be read. How the Bible is written is how the Bible must be read. The way it was must be the way it will be. 
The way it was must be the way it will be. Since the Bible never had human fallibility, ambiguity, unclarity within it, then its interpretation is not subjected to human ambiguity, human lack of perspicuity, or any kind of unclarity, or any kind of opinion afterwards. There's no ground for it, because the way it was written is the way it must be read. The way it was composed is the way it must be interpreted. And if there was always divine clarity in it, then that's the way it is. And this really matters because back in those days, perhaps we saw that people would add, as the first point makes clear, their own experience onto the word of God, but they might not just have added their own experience. They might've said, oh, no, 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 I'm not trying to add to the scriptures. You got me there, but I'm not gonna do that. Maybe I'll just modify what the scriptures already say. And we know that people did this in Peter's time. Why? Because in 2 Peter 3.16, it says this, as they twist the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. That's what people were saying. And this isn't just some ancient tactic that they did back in the day. They do it now. How often do you hear people say, well, the Bible's a divine book. It's got to have a lot of meanings. Oh, I can do whatever I want because the Bible... It's, it's big. And who can really understand what's going on? It's divine. It's supernatural. I can interpret it any which way I desire. What does Peter say? No, you can't. Because the way it was written is the way you have to read it. And there is no human interpretation involved. There is no human flexibility or ambiguity involved. It is what it is. Think of it this way. God is the perfect communicator. God is the perfect communicator. You say, how do you know that? Simple. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And then there was light. The exact same words repeated. It was not in the beginning. God said, let's have some light. And then there were bananas. There was no miscommunication. God has perfect communication. And in fact, that's repeated over and over in the opening chapters of Genesis, which is why it is so ironic and so damning that God asks, or rather the serpent asks of the woman, did God really say? Because God has already demonstrated what he says is what he means and what is. There is no differentiation between the three. It is that clear. And he has made it that clear as he has written the scripture. There is objective meaning in the text. And you cannot get around that. You cannot appeal. Well, that's just the way you read it, but that's not the way I read it. And who knows what the right reading is. And maybe we're all right. Everybody's right when it comes to the Bible. You can say anything you want. No, that's not how this works. Because the scripture is not by man's own interpretation. It never has been. It never will be. And this isn't just something that we have to use to fight against false teachers. This is really something that applies to us because there are times in our lives when we're reading our Bibles and we get this devotional moment, this insight, and we think it's so good. We want to sign our own Bible. We say, wow, that was an insight. The Abner Chow study Bible. And you write it down. But if it wasn't actually honoring the text, 
than it wasn't from the word of God. And we must remember that we don't have the right to just use the Bible any which way we want. The Bible is not the illustration of your agenda. The Bible is not the illustration of your point that you want to make. And the Bible certainly is not our playground to just explore ideas that we want to think about and and meditate upon regardless of what the text actually says. We have no right because the scripture is not for our interpretation. It comes with God's. And that's what we have to bow to. What we have to learn is a hermeneutic of surrender. Surrender. When you come to the scriptures, you surrender to it. In a time when people think that they can do whatever they want with the Bible, what we need to remind ourselves is that the Bible rules over our explanations. It is more sure than our explanation. Well, we've talked about how the Bible's more sure than our experience. And we've talked about how the Bible's more sure than our explanation. And now we need to talk about how the Bible is more sure than everything. More sure than everything. Verse 21 of Second Peter chapter one. And Peter now with the opening word for lays out the foundational reason that drives everything that he has been saying, everything that he has been talking about And this is the classic definition of inspiration, which really lays out the foundation for the Bible surety. And it really is sure over everything. And the way that Peter will lay this out comprehensively is first by talking about what scripture is not, what scripture is not. And it is not by man's own will. It is not because man made and bore prophecy by his own desire. And this is broader than just the idea of interpretation. It is not just in the way that man communicates or conveys things or interjects his own opinion. This is talking about the entire category in every shape or form, both content and communication. Man and his ideology was not inserted in that and sourced in that whatsoever. And we understand, yeah, it's obvious. Of course, man, this is not a human book. Why is Peter talking about this? Why does he need to mention it? It's clear. Yes, it is, but there's a reason why he's mentioning it. It has to do with the false teachers. Because remember the first point, people use their experience to add on to scripture. And people then also use their ability to interpret in the second point to try to modify the scriptures. What is Peter going against? You can't add, you can't modify, and you can't subtract. Subtract. And the only way you could really subtract from the scriptures is if you didn't believe that they were from God, that they were man's. People do this all the time. Back in Peter's day, throughout church history, and even in the modern day, people have ways to do this. They they try to ignore certain portions of scripture. They try to downplay them as if they're not emphasized, which makes them less of God's word than it is. Or they'll do something like this. This is This is my favorite example. People will say, well, well, you know, we just need to focus on the words of Jesus not the words of Paul. Here's my question when people say things like that. Who do you think sent Paul? Who do you think commissioned him? Who do you think told him you're gonna bear my name to the Gentiles? Who's the guy who said these things? Christ, obviously. And so you can't divide Paul from Jesus unless you believe Jesus spoke divine words but Paul did not. And at that moment, you've just fallen into exactly what Peter's talking about here. 
you believe that this book was purely made by the will of man. And Peter says, but you cannot believe that. And with that, Peter now kind of wraps everything up. He says, you can't add to scripture, you can't modify scripture, and you can't subtract from scripture. If you can't do any of those things, the scripture stands fixed. The scripture stands above everything. The scripture stands above your scrutiny. The scripture stands unchangeable and inviolable. It truly is absolute. That's what it means that it's absolute. You can't touch it. It has total governing authority over you. And that's when Peter moves from the negative definition to the positive definition. And just think about the scripture's uniqueness. It's unique in its authorship. Notice it talks about how men were carried by the Holy Spirit. This is denoting an amazing confluence amazing concordance between man and God, such that man was perfectly led, guided by the spirit. The word borne along even sometimes is used of how a ship is carried by the wind, perfectly maneuvered, perfectly led, perfectly guided and brought along. That is the nature of God's word. And furthermore, the word brought in your translation or born along is the same word as made in verse 21, made in verse 18, and made in verse 17. And you say, why does that matter? Because all of those other past words are all used of how God made his voice and his revelation known. This is emphasizing that this book is completely supernatural. It is supernaturally guided. It is supernaturally directed. It is supernaturally written. Even the people who speak are supernaturally inspired. Everything is supernatural. And here's what is amazing then. There is no book like this book. Think about all the books in the world. Think about all the books in the library. Think about all the books in all of history. This is the only one that is like this the one that you are holding at, the one that you are looking at right now, it is the only one in all of human history, in all the books that have ever existed or will ever exist that is like this. There is no book that has the authorship that this has. And also, there is no book that has the access that this has. Notice it says this, men spoke. And you might think, Men speaking sounds like it contravenes and contradicts and undermines all that you said about how lofty and unique and exceptional and distinctive this book is. No, it actually closes a loophole. Because here's what this shows. That people, people speak. That people here are talking and they use then their own language with the rules of language, with the rules that talk about how you understand what a word means and how you put together a sentence and what things mean in context and what can be metaphor and what can be simile and what can be symbol. There are rules. There are linguistic rules for all of it. And how do you know that that's all present? Because men spoke. Often people try to say this. Well, of course, the Bible's written in words and with language, but because it's a divine book, who maybe there are just special rules and we can just do whatever we want and we can just interpret it any which way we feel like. And maybe there's layers of meaning and all this kind of stuff. No, that's not how it works. Why? Because men spoke. 
they used normal language, which is why we have a grammatical hermeneutic, which is why we have a historical hermeneutic, because men spoke, so that it's clear to you. Sometimes people say, well, of course, we're supposed to obey the Bible, but no one can understand the Bible, and they use that as a loophole. You can understand the Bible. If you do your homework, you can understand the Bible. You can talk, can't you? If you can talk, then you can read. And if you can read, you can understand your Bible. It may not always be easy, but easy is not the same thing as accessible. If you work hard, you can. And that closes the loophole. The Bible has unique authorship. The Bible has accessibility, which means this. There's no excuse. You can understand it. And therefore it has the greatest authority. Men spoke from God. Think about how God speaks. Think about the character of God. When God speaks in creation, it happens. God sustains creation by his word. How does God even transform our own lives? By his word. Word, we are new creation, new creatures by the washing of his word. This word has all of that creative saving power from God. Sometimes people say, well, you got to really kind of do some things to enhance the power of God's word. What are you talking about? This is the kind of word that creates the world. What kind of more power do you need? You think you can improve on that? And sometimes people say, whoa, whoa, whoa. you got to make the Bible relevant to your life. They, They say that all the time. It drives me crazy. This is the book that is from Genesis to Revelation. It's about everything in the universe and in world history and redemptive history and God's eternal plan. For forever, people are not going to be asking you and God is not going to be asking you, well, did you make the Bible relevant to my people? No, he's going to be asking you, were you relevant to the Bible? Because the Bible's everything. The Bible's comprehensive. The Bible is the plan. And the question is not, did you apply it into your life, but did you fit within what the Bible's talking about? That's the real issue. And sometimes people say, well, you know, we just got to have a better definition and we can add that definition into scripture. No, the Bible is the definition. It is how God made things. It is how things are because it talks about with the creative, defining, determining power of God, what is It is the absolute truth. Man likes to talk a lot, but God has the final say. And that's what we have to remember. And so if you're going to listen to anything, if you're going to submit to anything, if you're going to teach anything, may it always be what has the final say. And that is God's word because God spoke it. And so it is because the word of God is more sure than everything. Well, in these verses, Peter has said that the word of God is more sure than our experience, more sure than our explanations, and that's because it's more sure than everything. You can't add to it, you can't modify it, and you can't subtract from it. This is the absolute truth. This is the absolute authority. This is the absolute word of God. So what do we do with this? You learn it. You surrender to it. You submit to it. 
And when somebody says to you, well, maybe my experience, or maybe we feel sometimes our experience could outweigh the Bible or give insight to the Bible or qualify the Bible, what we have to remind people is no, this is what determines your destiny. This is what determines your experience. And you cling to this book because your life depends on it. And when sometimes scholars may say, oh, but, but how do you really know? Can you really understand anything of this book? And because it's all language and there's all interpretive ambiguity, you remind them, no, the way that it was written is the way that it must be read. And it was never by one's own interpretation to begin with. And so that's never how it's going to be. The Bible has objective propositional meaning you can understand your Bible. And when the skeptic says, well, of course you can have the Bible, but it, it can't talk about this and it can't talk about that, you remind them, no, God has the final say. God has the final say. This is the way it really is. And that's where I'm going to stand because the Bible has the final authority on the matter. And you better go with what has the last say because that's the last say on the matter. What we must remind ourselves is that we must surrender to the word of God And may it always be, may it always be that we do exactly, exactly what Peter says, that we pay attention to this book as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the light arises in your heart. This book will get you home until God fulfills everything and even everything in you. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this word, this word dealing with your word. And we do pray with all of our heart that we would bow the knee always to the scriptures, that every time we open it, hear from it, know it, meditate on it, that it would be more sure than our experience, our explanations and everything. And it would define us and we would bow the knee to it and love it and through it, love you and your son in whose name we pray. Amen.